Well, it is a blessing to be here with you all this Lord's Day morning to open the Word of God with you together. Uh, If you will, please take your copy of the Scriptures and open to perhaps a very familiar, hopefully a very familiar portion, uh, the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. But before I read this holy word, let us pray and ask the Lord's blessing upon our time. Our gracious God and Father, we come before you this morning in the name of your Son. We thank you for the way that has been opened by his shed blood upon the cross, and that we, through him, are righteous in your sight, and that you are at work in your church and in our hearts and lives by your Holy Spirit to conform us to his perfect image. We ask for the blessing and the help of your Holy Spirit this morning, that as I read and as we hear, as I speak and as we listen, that you would open our hearts to its truth and that we would grow in love to you, Holy Father, who loved us first, in love to your Son by the Holy Spirit. We thank you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 1, chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Amen. Well, humans are intrigued by questions of origins. The question of origins. We have whole disciplines devoted to the study of how things came to be. You think of the study of etymology, the study of words and where words came from what they used to mean. Families are interested in their own family history. Where did they come from? Am I from France originally? Am I Scottish Scottish originally? Where did my family originate? We're also interested in the history of cities, in the history, of course, of nations and of world history. But what greater question can be asked than that of the origin of the universe or of the cosmos, the origin of all things. While many people do ask this question, it's not unpopular to be one of those who question and ask, where did the universe come from? Few are happy with the answer that the natural world, that the heavens and the earth give itself. You might think to yourself, does the universe speak? Does nature itself give an answer? Well, nature itself is talking. Nature itself is speaking. Psalm 119, verse 102, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament above showeth his handiwork. Every galaxy, every star, every cloud in the sky, every tree, Every plant, every blade of grass outside, every cell and every cellular piece of cellular machinery, the mitochondria, the DNA, every single created thing is speaking and is telling the answer to that question. God made me. 
But despite such a clear, continual, and convincing revelation of the things made, fallen humanity singly and collectively comes up with elaborate cosmogonies, stories of origin, to obscure the identity and the glory of the one and only Creator. We're like Gollum hiding from the sun and the moon because we don't like what they're telling us. We think of the ancient Near Eastern creation myth of the Enuma Elish. But this is not just a problem with ancient Babylonians or Assyrians. What about the Western, the North American creation myth known as the Big Bang Theory? It's kind of a silly name, actually, too. The the idea that the emergence of the universe comes from an extremely high temperature and density some 13.8 billion years ago. This is a story. It is a creation myth invented by fallen humanity to obscure the identity and the glory of the maker. To the ancient Israelites coming out of Egypt and to the church in all ages and especially to the church sojourning now in North America in the 21st century, God has given us something in addition to the clear and convincing continual language of nature. He has given us a book on origins, a book called Genesis. This morning, I would like to look with you at the first verse of the first chapter of this book and consider its simple yet profound statement. The grammar is simple, subject, verb, object. The youngest school child can understand it and diagram it. It's that easy. But partly because it is that easy, probably because it's that easy, and its truth is so great, it is so hard for us to really understand. It is a massive statement, so vast in its meaning, in its consequences, consequences, and its implications as to exhaust the strongest intellect and the most mature believer. In Genesis, God opens his mouth. And he tells us himself where you have come from, where the universe has come from. We need this today. We need this in our own souls. We need to remember our creator, not only in the days of our youth, but in the days of our old age. We need to remember our creator. Our families need this. Our churches need this to recover a robust biblical understanding of God, our maker. Our unbelieving culture needs this. Why are you seeing the things that you are seeing? It's because we have forgotten the creator. We've forgotten him. But not because he is not giving us evidence of himself. Everything is evidence. We've forgotten him because of our sin because we are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. But our unbelieving culture needs this. Your unbelieving neighbor, your unbelieving classmate needs to hear the good news of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They need this. Well, let's open and consider uh, this message together. A brief introduction to the book of Genesis. Our English word Genesis is a transliteration of the title 
of the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures known as the Septuagint, Genesis, and it means origin. It is a book of origins. This name is most appropriate because in it, Moses, by inspiration of the Spirit of God, records the origin of literally everything. The universe, earth, life, mankind, marriage, work, all things are recorded as to their beginning. But it doesn't only record the beginning of nature, it also tells us what is wrong with that nature. Why things are not the way we all know that they're supposed to be. It tells us of the origin of sin into the world. The corruption of a good creation. But it also records the beginnings of salvation. In the first promise of redemption given in Genesis 3.15. Here we have in the book of Genesis the foundation of the entire Old Testament. If you misunderstand Genesis, and if you misunderstand Genesis 1, and if you misunderstand Genesis 1 verse 1, the rest of the Bible will be an enigma to you. This is the foundation of the entire Old Testament, but it's not just the foundation of the Old Testament. It is the foundation of the New Testament. It is the background to the new creation that God has inaugurated Through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, it is the background and the foundation for the appearance and the work and the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a word about genre. What kind of literature is Genesis? Despite modern attempts to isolate Genesis chapter 1 and to dehistoricize it and to put it into the realm of poetry, And by the way, I just want to say, there's a reason they're doing that is because there are fantastically beautiful poetic elements of Genesis 1. Moses was a genius. The Holy Spirit is beautiful. And in his word, we should not be surprised when we find beautiful things, right? He made the stars. He's beautiful. His word is beautiful. But does that mean it's not history? No, of course it doesn't. Despite modern attempts to dehistoricize Genesis 1, Genesis 1, no less than chapters 2 to 50, and no less than all of the books leading up to 2 Kings, is one continuous historical narrative, one continuous historical record. Genesis 1-1 is inspired history. Now, if you have, I'm preaching from the New King James, if you have the Old King James, Here you will notice, and perhaps you remember if you grew up on this translation, reading Genesis 1, there's a lot of ands, isn't there? And God said, and God said, and God said. And you wonder, why did they begin the sentences with and? I thought we're not supposed to do that in English. (laughs) And, 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 and. Well, this is a translation, a fairly literal translation of a feature of Hebrew narrative. You begin with and, 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 and. This is narrative. This is history. This is as historical as the accounts of the kings in the book of First and Second Kings. But this is not only its eminent, its evident literary form. This is the near, near unanimous testimony of the church. The church has always read Genesis 1 as history. 
It has always read Genesis 1 as history, but more importantly, if you turn to the life of Christ, if you look in the Gospels, how did Jesus himself receive Moses? How did Jesus himself read his Bible? I want to read my Bible the way that Jesus read his Bible. He's the author of it. And when he reads his Old Testament, as we see in, for example, Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, recounting the creation of the man and the woman and marriage, he reads it as plain history. Have you not read from the beginning? God made them male and female, man and woman. Well, let us look here at this verse, Genesis 1, chapter 1, and we're going to consider it under three major headings. First, the time of creation. Second, the author of creation. Excuse me, four headings. The time of creation. Second, the author of creation. Third, the act of creation. And fourth, the art of creation. Let us look first at the time of creation. What does your Bible say? In the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, there is some discussion as to how to translate this phrase in the beginning in relation to what follows. Some say that it should be translated as a subordinate temporal clause. It's big, you know, big grammatical term, basically saying it should be translated as when God created, when God began to create. Some say, no, Genesis 1-1 is better understood as a title. Think of a title of a book. In other words, it's not recording actual creation, It's merely announcing a story about creation. This is one possible idea. But the traditional view, which is based on the ancient translations of the Hebrew Bible, on the Masoretic pointing, the little vowel points in the Hebrew text, verse 1 is best taken as a main clause, which is how it's translated in, in your Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, an absolute main clause. And what we learn here is not only the time of creation, but the creation of time itself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before his creation, there was no time. We learn here not only the time of creation, excuse me, not only the time of creation, but the creation of time itself. Time itself came into being. This pulpit began to exist at a certain time. This building began to exist at a certain time. I began to exist at a certain time. The universe Time itself began to exist at a certain time. Listen to what is recorded in Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. There is only one eternal, and he is God. He created time in the beginning. The universe is not eternal. It's not some platonic emanation. It began to exist 
time began to exist. We come now to the author of creation. Look again at your text. In the beginning, God created. Right off the bat, without argument or apologetic, we meet the absolute unconditioned being of God. But notice we come to know God through his work. From the beginning, we know him as creator. He is always our creator. We are not given here an abstract concept of deity, but a spirit-crafted revealed name. Now, this is hard sometimes because in English, the word God, when you hear God, it can refer to almost anything in our daily use of that word. Non-Christians use the word God. Mormons talk about God. Jehovah's Witnesses speak about God. Even those who are not, 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 even, not even cults, right, will use the term God and refer, and when they say that, they refer to some concept of deity. But this is not what is given to us in the text. We are being introduced to a being with a name. The Holy Spirit has given us a name whereby we come to know the one whose name it is, the maker of the heavens and the earth. And this is important. Psalm 9, verse 10. They that know thy name will put their trust in thee. They that know thy name will put their trust in thee. We should be concerned to know the meaning and the significance of the names of God. They are windows into the divine being. We know him through his revealed name, not in the abstract, but as he makes himself known by the Holy Spirit in his word. We know him by means of his revealed names. Well, what does the name God, and of course in Hebrew many of you know, Elohim, what does the name Elohim mean? The name comes from potentially two roots and points to God as the strong one. That's the first root, the strong one, almighty. And the second one is the object of dread. And I would add the object of holy dread the object of holy fear, a fear that we don't have for the things of the created order, but a fear, a dread that is reserved for the maker of that created order alone. We see this connection also in the New Testament between God, Elohim, the creator, and the attributes of power and honor to him as the supreme object of holy fear in Romans chapter 1. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even what? His eternal power and Godhead. His eternal power and divinity. And what is that primal sin of humanity? Even though they knew God, They recognized him in the things made. They did not honor him as God or give thanks. They did not fear him or give thanks. We have here an introduction. We are met by the God of omnipotent, of almighty power. The God who is alone the supreme object of our holy fear. 
Now, the form of this word Elohim, you probably have heard around, so that it is actually a plural noun, that the form of this word is plural. And some have seen in this and rightly questioned, is this something, does this speak to the doctrine of the Trinity? Do we have here evidence of the Holy Trinity? Well, there are godly interpreters on both sides of this question. For example, Luther took it this way. Calvin did not. And so we have to be be very careful with how we interpret this. I'm inclined, following Bavink, not to see in it uh, necessarily uh, conclusive evidence of the doctrine of the Trinity, but I would say this. We are right to look in Genesis chapter 1 for evidence of the Trinity. Because the Trinity is God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth is to say, in the beginning, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit created the heavens and the earth. And he is there. The Trinity is in Genesis chapter 1. Look at verse 2. And the Spirit of Elohim, the Spirit of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. So we have God and we have the Spirit of God. And then we see that God creates all things by means of his word. He spoke and it was done. This is developed in Psalm 33, verse 6. Psalm 33, verse 6. What does it say? By the word of Jehovah were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath or the Spirit. Of his mouth. We have three persons. Now, this is implicit. It's not explicit. But what is implicit in the Old Covenant and what we see in types and shadows is made known clearly with the coming, the incarnation, the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church is made explicit in the new. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. This is to say, who made the heavens and the earth in the beginning? The Word made the heavens and the earth in the beginning. And who is the Word of the Father but our Lord Jesus Christ? God is and is almighty. He is omnipotent, fearful, and majestic. What do we learn even from these few opening words of Holy Scripture? We learn that atheism is false. We learn that agnosticism is an immoral joke. It is more akin to some kind of moral stupidity than it is to anything else. Atheism and agnosticism is false. But monotheism, mere monotheism, is also not enough. Someone might say, well, Jews also believe, unbelieving Jews also believe in one God who created all things. And yes, they do. A Muslim would say, yes, I believe that there is one God and he created all things. So do we know and worship the same God? Genesis 1.1, in the light of all of Scripture, which is one, tells us no. 
Because in the beginning, who is that God that made all things? John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, Jesus made the heavens and the earth. Muslim, do you confess that? No, we don't worship the same God. Unbelieving Jew, do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth made the heavens and the earth because he is the eternal son of God? No, I don't believe that. We don't worship the same God. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. Monotheism is not enough. But for us who know the truth by grace, who by grace have been called into the fellowship of the Father and the Son, and who know the Father and the Son, and to know him who is true, do we, have we lost perhaps a sense of the greatness and the majesty of the God who made the heavens and the earth? Do we tremble with holy fear before him? When we look around us, are we dull to the things of this world, the heavens and the earth, all the beauty, the order, the power, the majesty? Are we bored by it? Would we rather look at our phones because those are more exciting? We must recover brothers and sisters, a sense of the, of the majesty and the omnipotence of God. Piety, true piety, true godliness begins with a proper response of holy fear before the power and majesty of God. Well, this leads us to consider our third heading, the act of creation. And this follows immediately in our English Bibles, in the beginning God created moving from the creator to his action. Now you notice there is no violent struggle here. There's no blood. There's no death. There's no senseless explosion. God creates in one simple and serene act of his omnipotent will. He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood the Hebrew verb underlying our English word for create uniquely expresses this kind of making. God is always the subject of this verb. The verb, in case you're interested, is bara. God is always the subject of this verb. And it denotes that unique work of God whereby he calls into being that which did not exist. I want to speak to the children here a moment. Children, have you ever made something at home? Have you ever created something? Maybe a picture for your parents or something at school. You took what? Paper. You took crayons, markers, paint. Hopefully you had the permission of your parents when you did this. But you took all these things together and you what? You made something beautiful. Right? But did God make like that? He did not make like that. Did God need those things? Crayons? Paper? He made out of nothing. There was no matter. There was no energy. There was no raw material that he took and refashioned. He spoke in one simple, serene act of his omnipotent will. And it was done. He commanded, and it stood 
fast. This is known as creation out of nothing, ex nihilo. Creation out of nothing. It is reflected in our shorter catechism, question nine. What is the work of creation? God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. Now, this word also occurs with some frequency 17 times in the prophecy of Isaiah. It seems as if Isaiah really likes this verb. It's not a very common verb in the Bible, and yet it occurs 17 times in the prophecy of Isaiah. For example, in Isaiah chapter 40, 26 to 28. And if you will, just turn with me. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40, 26 to 28. I want you to see this, the connection of this unique act proper to God alone in connection to his work of creation. Isaiah 40, 26 to 28. The prophet says, lift up your eyes, God speaks, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created, there's the word, these things who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, Jehovah, the creator. There's the word. Of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Notice the connection between this unique work of God and creation. There is none like him in heaven or on earth or under the earth. He alone calls into being that which does not exist. There is another interesting connection with this word, and this is, I think, especially precious for us who know the Lord Jesus Christ. In Psalm 51.10, after David had committed adultery and with Bathsheba and murdered her husband, in his prayer of confession, in verse 10, he says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Only God, the maker of the heavens and the earth, can give you a clean heart. We think by nature that, oh, I'm bad, and if I just do this, I'll scrub it up a little. You know, I can get the dirt off. The thing is dead. It's dead. And the only one who can make it alive is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he does. He gives us new hearts. That is what is signed and sealed to us in our baptisms. The new heart, regeneration. But it's only a work of God. By his spirit, only he can do this. Well, what do we learn Under this heading, some things stand out. One, God is transcendent. 
God is transcendent. There is none like him in heaven or on earth or under the earth. There is no confusion in Genesis 1-1 between creator and creature, between divine and natural. There is no confusion. God is God. He is eternal. He is omnipotent. He is fearful in praises, and he creates out of nothing. There is no confusion between God the creator and what he has made. We must reject all forms of pantheism that seek to muddle that distinction, that separation between the creator and the creature. You are not God. I am not God. The sum of all created reality, this universe, is not God. It's a creature. It was made out of nothing. Only God is God. And the end of your being, the height of your purpose, is to know, to worship, and to serve the creator, the one who made you and redeemed you through the blood of his son. It's not to serve the creature. It's not to honor the creature or to give to the creature that honor that is due to God alone. We must reject all forms of pantheism or anything like it. Only God is God. Well, this leads us to our final heading, the art of creation. What did God make? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this is commonly understood here as what's known as a literary merism, taking uh, two extremes, two poles, and joining them together to indicate everything in between. We are somewhat familiar with this, from sea to shining sea, everything in between, the heavens and the earth, a merism. And I believe this is true. This is partly of what, of what we are being taught. But I also think that what we are being taught is rather we, we are being led to consider the two great realms over which God is creator and king, the heavens and the earth. And you will see this as you read your Old Testament, as you read your New Testament, as you read your Bible Scriptural authors frequently will use this language of the heavens and the earth to refer to everything in between, but also to refer to those two great realms of creation over which God is creator and over which he is king. Think about if you've ever seen someone painting. Maybe you've watched YouTube videos with painters will teach you how to paint. And what do they do when they have a canvas? They have to divide what? They have to divide. They have to show the horizon. They have to divide the top from the bottom to give a sense of perspective. Well, this is something like what's happening. The heavens above and the earth beneath. Heaven refers to the heavens, what we refer to as space, but also to heaven, the dwelling place of God. Isaiah 66, verse 1, heaven is my throne, the place where the glory of God uniquely is manifested before his creation. Heaven is my throne. 
Earth refers, of course, to the dwelling place of mankind, where man would be created, in which he would live, where redemption would be accomplished, and then the new creation inaugurated and made new. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool, the place over which God is king and savior. This is, finds expression in the New Testament in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him, of course, who's the him? It's the Son, the Word of the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. By him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. I want to point that out. Did you notice that last preposition? All things were created through him because he is the word. Did you notice the purpose or the end for which they were made? They were made for him. The heavens and the earth were made for the Son, not ultimately for us. Yes, for us, proximally, but ultimately they were made for Jesus. You were created for a variety of purposes, and you can enumerate some of them. But ultimately, why has God given you being and life? It's for Jesus. You were made for Him. Your purpose is for Him. That should unify your entire existence. There's nothing outside of your life that should not find its unity in the Son. The heavens were made for him. Angels were made for him. The galaxies were made for him. Oh, but you, you have your own life. You're going to do your own thing. No. You were made for him. And he bled and died that you may be redeemed from your sin and that you may know him and that you may worship him and through him come to the Father. All things were made through him and for him. We've seen that God is eternal in the beginning. We've seen that he is almighty. His name and his works declare that. He is majestic, but the heavens and the earth, if you had to pick an attribute of God that they especially declare, I think we could say that the heavens and the earth leave us with no doubt that God is most wise and most good. The omnipotent, almighty God of creation is unimaginably good. The unending source of all goodness. There is no goodness outside of him. There is no goodness apart from him. And you think to yourself, yeah, well, I can think of some good things. I have, you know, these friends and food and uh, I got these things. These are gifts. These are temporary gifts. He is the infinite giver, the unending, 
never-stopping source of pure, holy goodness. These things that he gives us are good, and we should treat them with honor. We should give thanks to him for them. But the essence of idolatry is what? Taking the gift and putting it above the giver. Saying, I want what you give, God. I like breath, but I don't want to serve you. I don't want to obey you. I like that you give me health, but I don't want to devote that health to your honor, to love my brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's the essence of idolatry. No, God is good. The heavens and the earth proclaim his unchanging goodness. It also teaches us that because he is the maker, he is the owner and the Lord of everything. At best, we are stewards. We did not make the heavens and the earth. We did not make anything in them. He made us, and he has given us a share in that rule for a season. But we are going to give an account to him one day of how we have stewarded those things that he has given to us. The Lord will return. The books will be opened. We will have to give an account to the Lord for how we have stewarded his creation, how we have stewarded the things that he has given to us, your work, your health, your wife, your husband, your children, children, your parents, children, your education, your catechism classes. We will have to give an account for how we have stewarded his good creation. May the Lord find us faithful when he returns. What is our response? What should be our response before this God? The God who made the heavens and the earth. We see a picture of this in the last book of the Bible, in the book of the Revelation. Chapter 4, verse 11 Book of the Revelation, chapter 4, verse 11. You might think, well, this was good at the beginning, but a lot of things have happened since then, and you know, maybe, maybe it will kind of fall, I don't know, it will kind of decrease in importance. But actually, that's not what we see. Listen to the worship of heaven from verse 10, happening, by the way, now, with us. In Christ, by the Spirit, listen to the worship of heaven. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Heaven will never stop singing and praising the Creator. For eternity, we will continue to praise the Lord for his work of creation. Let's start now. Let's start now in our hearts, in our homes, in the church. Begin to join with the worship of heaven to tune our hearts 
to sing his praise, the praise of the glory of the only creator of heaven and earth. Well, we opened this exhortation with the notice that humans are intrigued by questions of origins. This questioning is natural, it is right, because we are made in God's image. The preacher of Ecclesiastes says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. We will not ultimately be satisfied with the things of this earth. It is natural, it is necessary to ask where we have come from. And what have we heard this morning? We have heard God's own answer. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, of course, if we keep reading, we will see, we will read that this good creation has been marred by the corruption of sin. We will read of the entrance of sin into the world, the condemnation under which we all were conceived and born in as children, as natural descendants of the first man, our father Adam. We will read of the corruption of all creation, that the cosmos, the heavens and the earth, participated in the fall of man and woman. They were not untouched by it. What does Paul declare in Romans, his letter to the Romans? The whole creation groans until now. The creation is doing this because of the sin of the first man. And we, his natural descendants in him, but God the creator did not leave the heavens and the earth to suffer the corruption and the destruction of sin. He did not make it, in other words, to watch it be destroyed. He didn't create it in order to watch it be taken by a rebel angel and submitted to corruption and death. No, he promised a new creation. He promised that the serpent would be crushed, that Satan would be destroyed, that the seed of the woman would be delivered, that their sins would be forgiven, and that they would be given entrance into a redeemed world, a new world, what we confessed this morning in the Nicene Creed, the life of the world to come, the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. He gave us a promise. Isaiah 65, 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former former shall not be remembered. Well, this new creation has begun with the coming of the Creator Himself. Through Him, through whom and for whom all things were made, what does John tell us in his prologue? Became flesh and dwelt among us. One new man, Jesus Christ, eternal God of the Father, Son of the Father, man born of the Virgin Mary. And in this one new man, he has begun the work of new creation. If anyone is in Christ, Paul tells us, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. 
Behold, all things have become new. Jesus is going to return. The maker who was humbled for a time, who suffered the penalty of our sins and who rose on the third day, he's going to return. But he's not returning to be humiliated again. He's returning to his own creation. He made it. It's his. He's coming back to claim his own. He began that work in his first coming. Not to judge the world, but to save the world. And that salvation is open to all who believe. Rebels are called to repent and believe. And be saved. And become new creations in Christ. But he is coming back a second time to judge the world. To wipe out all from his kingdom that are causing ungodliness. To clean his creation and to make it new. He's coming back to judge the world. You now, who believe in him, are participating in that new creation. And if there's anyone here who is unrepentant, who does not know Jesus Christ, who has not submitted to him as their maker, who has not received his salvation, repent. He's come to save you from your sins. Repent and receive him. But we, as the church, we look forward to the perfection of this new creation. We participate in it, but it is yet to be perfected and consummated in the end. Listen to what Peter says in his second epistle. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts this day. Let me close in prayer.